0: When vocal control began, uh, it was a great thing initially. It was a, a part of the American experiment.
1: The only way to reform school funding is through the political system.
2: When you have kids in your own community you don't think are being served well, who, uh, who aren't making it through school, who aren't graduating, who aren't going to post-secondary education, it's near and dear to your heart and creates a sense of urgency that you can't wait for systemic changes.
3: They're getting huge benefits which, for the most part, are, are heaped upon people who don't need these benefits
4: there might be a tipping point where we have created so much choice that it creates so much inequality that having a handful of individual winners doesn't justify having that system of choice.
5: Welcome back to Breached, a podcast on the American social contract. I'm Helena Swanson-Neistrom.
6: And I'm Jyoti Jastrasarya.
5: We're halfway through our 10-part series. And if you're just joining us, we encourage you to start with our short trailer, Introducing Breached, to get a better sense of our project.
6: We started the series by talking about community. Who is part of an American social contract? Who is granted full membership? And who faces exclusion? A set community requires a boundary. And generally, we've been talking about that boundary as a national one. This episode, on education challenges that national sense of community, that national boundary of obligation. Instead, based on tradition, legislation, and decades and decades of litigation, our current education system defines boundaries that are much, much smaller. Today, we're exploring what happens when we narrow our definition of community, limit our obligations to those in our immediate neighborhood, and shrink our social contract to a local level.
5: To understand why our education system breaks up a national social contract into smaller communities, you have to understand the case San Antonio Independent School District v. Rodriguez. In 1972, Arthur Gotchman argued in front of the Supreme Court on behalf of his clients, schoolchildren across Texas who lived in low-income neighborhoods. Arthur argued that education was a fundamental right and that a state's reliance on local property taxes to fund local schools leaving wealthier communities with more funding and poorer communities with significantly less was unconstitutional.
3: I think
1: think what's important is the constitutional importance of education. That is, education affects matters guaranteed by the Bill of Rights. It's preservative of other rights, unlike some of these other services. It's related to every important right we have. It's related to the right to vote, Speech, jury service. On a federal jury, you can't serve if you can't read, write, understand, and speak the English language.
5: Arguing on the other side for the Texas school districts, Charles Allen Wright presented a very different conception of education, one in need of local flexibility instead of national protection.
3: I would like to take as the text from my argument this morning a sentence from an article that Professor Coons and his collaborators, Ezra Sugarman and Kloon, wrote last year. They said, of all public functions, education in its goals and methods is least understood and most in need of local variety, experimentation, and independence.
5: The court agreed with the Texas school districts. In a 5-4 decision, the Supreme Court held that education is not a fundamental right under the U.S. Constitution, and that states may continue to fund their schools locally, keeping resources from different districts separate from one another.
6: To understand the origins of local control over education, we spoke with Professor Marta Tienda, a sociologist at Princeton University.
0: But the local control began... Uh, it was a great thing initially. It was a, a part of the American experiment. Why the United States catapulted over its uh, over Europe in terms of uh, education because education had been largely private. We, we inherited that from from Europe, and a lot of it was uh, uh, was linked to religious institutions. The Baptist Church, for example, uh, Protestant churches would would establish some of the uh, universities, uh, and what they came up with, with the idea of, of for school of, of levying taxes to to educate the masses and when a society is relatively homogeneous and everybody's in it together and it aren't my kids or your kids it takes a village kind of mentality there was support for for everybody paying their share for collective goods
6: while the origins of local control may have been used to expand educational opportunities beyond private institutions the rodriguez decision highlights how it can limit education for those who fall outside the boundary of a community
0: important of the uh, the Rodriguez case is that they, because of the financing of schools, this local control meant that that localities decide how much to uh, levy taxes for their own schools that serve their kids. So you have, with uh, segregation, you have poor schools that service poor kids, partly some of that was by design because there was exclusion, the Mexican kids were not allowed to go uh, to, the, to the other side of uh, San Antonio where the wealthier kids were. So when you levy support for schools on property taxes, it becomes very regressive because the poorer neighborhoods have less income and their houses are worth less and that's what they use to generate how much they're gonna generate for, for uh, property taxes. And property taxes are an important uh, component of, of school funding.
5: 45 years after Rodriguez was decided, all 50 states still rely on local property taxes to at least some extent to fund education. And most states still allow districts to keep the revenue from local property taxes within their own boundaries. However, the history of why and how local boundaries were drawn is different in every state. In 2011, James Blackshire, an attorney from Birmingham, Alabama, filed a case using over 300 years of history, to argue that Alabama had intentionally limited some students' access to resources. The timeline presented in the case goes back to English settlements in the 1600s, but we asked James to share how more recent events, particularly segregation between black and white students following the Civil War, allowed for funds to be diverted away from schools serving black students. The segregation of schools
1: was a necessary component of preserving white wealth, Because uh, only by keeping blacks in separate schools could public revenues be diverted entirely to the white schools. Uh, If they had been integrated even under radical Republican rule, it would have been difficult uh, to separate funding for whites from blacks. But the policy of the state was to avoid at all
5: costs taxing whites. Uh, To pay for the education of blacks. After segregation was outlawed by Brown v. Board of Education, the state adopted different legal tools to limit tax revenue for predominantly low income black school districts.
1: This was when George Wallace came to power. He used his power, that was based on uh, opposition to federal court, all the federal court actions favoring civil rights, voting rights, and so forth school desegregation, to get the legislature to adopt new constitutional amendments that literally took uh, farm and timber property in the Black Belt out of the tax base. Uh, This is at the same time all the whites in the Black Belt fled the public schools in order to avoid uh, desegregation. This left black schools in the Black Belt in particular, without any tax base for local revenues. There, there you have in a, in a nutshell, a much abbreviated nutshell, what
5: brought us uh, to uh, federal court. Since the location of a school dictates its ability to access revenue, rural Alabama schools rely on the taxes raised from surrounding farm and timberland. Without the ability to raise taxes on these specific types of property, their ability to finance education remains strictly limited.
6: Ultimately, in an 854-page decision, a district court agreed with the historical narrative presented by the plaintiffs, but upheld the state's tax system. On appeal, the tax system was again upheld. The judge in that case conceded, quote, in the best of all possible worlds, state and local governments would ensure adequate funding for all facets of their public school systems. In the world in which we live, however, the reality is that some public school systems do not have sufficient resources to educate the children entrusted to their care, end quote. James and his team appealed to the Supreme Court in 2014 and were denied a hearing.
5: We asked James what he took away from this case and whether he believed that litigation would ultimately result in more equitable school funding across the country.
1: It's certainly clear to me I've gotten the message that the only way to reform school funding is through the political system, uh, because, as I said, the Constitution of the United States is not designed to help school reformers it's designed to help uh, property owners uh, to help the wealthy and I mean all of the civil rights advances that we've had in uh, in my lifetime uh, if you stop and look at them you will see that the best advances came when they didn't cost anybody any money or much money uh, and certainly didn't require redistributing taxes. When you think about the campaign, the post-Brown campaign to desegregate schools all over the South and all over the country, the litigators never really challenged the funding sources because they knew they would get a hostile response that likely could undermine their other desegregation objectives. That's a reality that, um, that Americans ought to understand. We have a disparity in funding in a region of our state. The counties have been named. And I said in the paper, if I had a child and I lived in one of those counties, I would want relief. The reason we have disparity in funding is not because we're prejudiced at the governmental level. It's because we collect taxes based on property values. And our property values in those counties are pretty low because there's no industry.
6: That was Republican Senator Lindsey Graham speaking in 2005 about South Carolina's struggle to provide an adequate education to all its students. Clearly, at its core, this is not a partisan issue. However, the solutions put forward can sometimes create deep divisions. One idea that has received significant attention is the school choice movement, meant to give children the opportunity to attend schools outside of their neighborhood or outside of the public education system altogether.
5: We need education to work for every child. So let me ask you, do you believe parents should be able to choose the best school for their child regardless of their zip code or family income? Me too, and so does President Trump. We have a unique window of opportunity to make school choice a reality for millions of families. That was Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos speaking in February of last year. In particular, DeVos has brought renewed attention to the idea of vouchers, which give families public funds to attend private schools of their choice.
6: One of the lead nonprofit organizations dedicated to expanding voucher opportunities is Florida-based Step Up for Students, which administers vouchers to over 100,000 students annually. We spoke to John East, the Vice President for Policy and Public Affairs at Step Up, about the political attention that vouchers have recently received.
2: Uh, in the first year that uh, President Trump has been in office and, and, uh, and the selection of Betsy DeVos a, uh, as his secretary of education was a clear signal that he, uh, he truly and, and certainly uh, Ms. DeVos does truly believe in uh, all forms of choice, including private school uh, vouchers and scholarships.
6: However, he pointed out that some versions of the school choice movement have been embraced by Democratic politicians as well
2: the Obama administration uh hugely supportive of trying to bring a new reality to public education trying to be more child focused and and very specifically in his uh uh president obama's pledge during his uh, 8 years to double the number of students in charter schools which are basically private schools that, that contract that are allowed to contract with a district and have their uh, the, the tuitions for their students paid uh, through through a school district so uh, President Obama very much set up that framework.
6: We spoke to John about how school choice is one way to challenge our narrowly
2: drawn boundaries. one of the things we know about children who come from poverty is that they have greater obstacles in education period, um, and, and they tend to have the fewest options. They, by definition, they not they are not necessarily able to move into a neighborhood uh, that will get them into a school that their parent may prefer, um, uh, and and certainly they're not uh, able to choose a, a, a private school and pay tuition for that. So, the scholarship that we operate focuses on those students in particular and says. Um, you know, we, we got to find more ways to help kids uh, for whom the, uh, the compact of public education, the commitment uh, of public education is really most poignant. I mean, those, the, the, those who have less, uh, we need to provide more.
6: Expanding options beyond a neighborhood school, whether it's through vouchers or charter schools or exam schools, has received significant criticism from people who believe that it undermines a communal public school system. One of the ways that we have thought about this debate is as a tension between long-term sustainability and short-term needs.
2: When you have kids in your own community you don't think are being served well, who who aren't making it through school, who aren't graduating, who aren't going to post-secondary education is near and dear to your heart and creates a sense of urgency that you can't wait for systemic changes that my children, the children in my community, maybe in my church, uh, they need answers now and if this is one of those answers I'm going to try it. If it works well for my kids I'm going to support it. Um, uh, which is uh, that, that sort of burning in the belly that happens when, when they're your own kids and, and we're not just talking about conceptual framework of of public school education versus private school education.
5: The consequences of where you live extend beyond the first years of school. We spoke to Tressie McMillan Cottam, a professor at Virginia Commonwealth University and the author of Lower Ed, about the long-term implications of one's home address.
4: Um, As I like to tell my students um, when I do social ed, I tell them, you didn't start going to college when the day you applied to college. If you end up in college, it is likely that you've been applying for college since you were in kindergarten. Right. Somebody has been guiding you, processes have been guiding you to sort of put you on a track that leads you to higher education. So there is
5: a, um, a sort of lifelong interlocking process that
4: makes people prepared for college one day.
5: College itself has also been at the center of the debate around who we educate and how we do so. College tuition and college debt are at an all-time high, and more and more jobs require a college degree. So in recent years, some people have challenged whether the traditional non-for-profit model should be the only way to provide a college education. Hundreds of for-profit colleges, such as the University of Phoenix, have created a new market for higher education. So
4: what you see at the state level, for example, uh, where I was at the time, uh, uh, I was in Georgia. What you saw, you saw politicians and um, uh, economists and economists of education, um, and sort of uh, workforce booster saying things like, we need more people with college degrees and high level training for the economy, right? Our state school system can't be expected to take those students on because we're not willing to fund their expansion to do it. Oh, isn't it great, the private sector has a solution for this, so let's incentivize the market-based colleges, which are for-profit colleges, to serve all of those people.
5: Support for for for-profit colleges can be seen as one example of a general trend to shift services that may once have been seen as a public obligation, an important component of an American social contract, to a private obligation, a market good that an individual can only benefit from if they can pay for it.
4: Um, But I do think that what we are increasingly shifting to markets is unsustainable for people to navigate. This is how this picture looks right now for like a a sort of quote unquote typical family, um, with all apologies for everything that flattens. So let's say you are, you know, you uh, go on to school or you're working and want to go back to school, increasingly, you're responsible for paying for that. At the same time that you are responsible for saving for your own children's higher education, right, So, that we also, so when we shift that risk, it's not just for uh, your education, you're now increasingly responsible for paying more of the cost for your children's education. And we just start to see this happen, you know, get ratcheted up uh, at every level of a family. and so all of that debt, the debt that you take on for preschool, we see the privatization of preschool, the privatization of K through 12, maybe even if you aren't participating in private K through 12, you are increasingly thought to be responsible for things like private tutoring, right? or um, all of the sports leagues and the after-school programs that your uh, K-12 school can no longer afford to offer, music lessons, all these things that we think are important are increasingly shifted and parents are responsible for paying for those things. That's also privatization. So at the same time, all of that's happening, what we're also saying to people is, and oh yeah, you, you're gonna need to go to school every four or five years too to stay market ready, right? Job ready.
6: After talking to Tressie, we also wanted to learn more about some of the challenges inherent in traditional four-year nonprofit colleges. We spoke to Wick Sloan, who teaches at Bunker Hill Community College in Boston, about how veterans in particular have been ignored. We met Wick in a local coffee shop, and he explained how he first became aware of this problem.
3: This, This started because I had veterans in my classes, so I called my schools, Williams and Yale, and I said, can somebody help me teach veterans? And they both said, why are you asking us? And they still don't understand why I'm asking them. We don't have any veterans. But these schools act as though the absence of veterans is, is is an issue of fate, not based on their own resources. And we have a volunteer army and And that enables people to go to these schools without interrupting for military service. And people from these schools tend to end up at the tables where they start wars. And just to abandon these men and women is crazy.
6: In addition to an obligation that we as a country may have to ensure that veterans are welcomed in our institutions of higher education, Wick also mentioned the diversity of experience that they bring to his classroom.
3: Um, Another veteran talked about how the hiss of the brakes on the commuter rail sounds like a rocket-propelled grenade. The hiss of the brakes on the T does not, but that he's coming to school and about to dive on the floor. And so, again, these are amazing miracles, but I, I said, well, why did it, how do you, what do you think about Tim's and John's experiences and everybody said, that's awful. And then we, then I said, well, why did we send them to this? And everyone then said, I had nothing to do with it. And then we pulled out the Constitution and I think every, if every college classroom in America had that discussion, we might be a lot more careful about Going off to war.
6: Wick has written critically about our current system of higher education and the benefits that four year institutions receive without being pressured to grant access to a broader community.
3: The whole premise of a nonprofit is it's tax exempt because it's supposed to be creating a public good. So that, you know, if a, if a school is supposed to be creating a public good that's equal to whatever the tax benefit is they're getting huge benefits which for the most part are, are heaped upon people who don't need these benefits. If you're an undergraduate at Harvard College or at Williams, the federal benefits per student um, through tax policy are depending on your assumptions thirty to eighty thousand dollars a year. That's every student not filling out a FAFSA, etc. The the best one of my students can get is a federal Pell grant that's fifty nine hundred bucks. And they have to go through the humiliation of the FAFSA and all these other things. My my simple idea is that, you know, need based federal aid in education should be equal.
5: The issues of who is educated, who is excluded, and where our boundaries of obligation are drawn have been the subject of intense debate for decades and decades. Within these debates lie real tensions between imagining long-term systematic change that defies traditional boundaries and norms and providing short-term market solutions that open up access to low-income students and their families. These debates also implicate how we measure our scope of obligation. As Tressie put it, there's a tension between a vision of societal success and individual success.
4: I'm extremely sympathetic to um, all of the systemic failures that have made choice, you know, very attractive for many parents, again, especially lots of poor and working class parents who can't afford to pick up and move to the quote unquote good district, right? Um, but the, that's the same sort of ideological framing that says to us, well, yes, yeah, so what if only 30% of the students in a for-profit college graduate, those 30% are the winners. The question for us, I think, as a society, is whether we still believe in a society, <laughs> right? So having individual winners from a game of inequality, we have said in the past, is not a good justification for doing something, and that there might be a tipping point where we have created so much choice that it creates so much inequality that having a handful of individual winners doesn't justify having that
5: system of choice. If education is to be a real part of any American social contract, it's certainly not inevitable.
3: I started reading about Brown versus Board of Education and all that, and I mean, what I, you know, I was just like any other fool who thought that they just threw together the lawsuit and that was that, not that it was 25 years of chess playing by Thurgood Marshall riding around on uh, on air-conditioned trains and and all those things, so it wasn't easy.
6: We would love to hear your thoughts on where you think our boundaries of obligation should be drawn when it comes to education. As we do with every episode, we've included some sources on our website if you're interested in reading more about this issue or learning more about our guests. And please stay tuned for our next episode on April 25th in which we'll explore the concept of employment.
5: As always, thanks to our producer, Mareva Lindo, and to Annie swanson neistrom for our artwork. The music you heard on this podcast is Lullaby for Democracy and Go Tell It on the Molehill" by Dr. Turtle.
6: We hope you'll check us out at breachedpodcast.org follow us on Twitter at Breached Podcast and subscribe to Breached on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have feedback or ideas that you'd like to share with us, feel free to send us an email at breachedpodcast at gmail.com or leave us a message at 617-528-0708. And if you like what you've heard so far, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate the feedback we've received so far.
5: I'm Helena Swanson-Nystrom. And I'm
6: Jyothi Jasrasaria. And this is Breached. Thank you.